The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. Write-offs, invoices, project profitability, developing a project management culture. These are all the topics we're going to talk about in today's episode. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Mike Lozanoff, a professional engineer and owner of Lozanoff Consulting Services, about the different aspects of project management that we often aren't taught about until we kind of get thrown into them and we get our first invoice. Before we jump in, I do want to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FENPE exams. PPI's reputation and history sets them apart. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975, including me. Their courses and review materials are based on decades of experience. They schedule their courses over two to three months to ensure you can properly retain information and allow enough time for homework. They ensure students don't have to cram for their exam. Their courses come with everything you need. They offer robust programs with access to lectures, forums, learning hub, books, slides, and more. Their programs place a big emphasis on homework. They believe that practicing as much as possible is crucial to exam success. PPI's instructors are very highly rated on student surveys. They're extremely attentive and knowledgeable. Check out PPI today at PPI, the number two, pass.com to see all the options available for the FE and PE exam prep. Again, that's PPI, the number two, PASS.com. I also want to mention, if you're interested in people leadership, project management, or seller doer business development training, we have that for you at EMI. In fact, we don't call it training. We call our courses development programs because they're spaced out over time. We give your staff workbooks so they can practice what we're teaching on the job and actually transfer these skills back to the job. And as a bonus, we provide professional development hours. You can check out all of our upcoming programs at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on upcoming training or give us a call 800-920-4007. You can enroll in our general programs. We can do a company-only session, or we can even customize a program and help you to build a flagship PM program for your firm. Again, that's engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Click on Upcoming Training, or call us at 800-920-4007. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now, I'd like to welcome our guest onto the show for today. Mike Lozanoff is a licensed professional engineer and owner of Lozanoff Consulting Services. Mike, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. It's great to be with you. So, Mike, in your own words, why don't you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your career journey, and how you got to where you are today? I've been in the AEC industry for 25, probably going on closer to 30 years now. In that time, I had the unique opportunity to work for some small businesses. Uh, when I mean small, I'm talking about 10 to 15 person firms to mid-size, couple hundred folks, maybe spread out over multiple different states, uh, as well as a large national and international firm, you know, thousands plus of people all over. And in that time, I had a lot of great experiences and I got to learn a lot all along the way. As most in as a professional engineer, I started out as a designer and I started in one of those very small firms. So as a design technician, I was in charge of actually doing all of my own design, which was pretty interesting and unique, especially from coming right out of college and being able to kind of sink my teeth right into it. But I also had an opportunity to work with our survey group where I went out actually and was an instrument man. And we did a lot of construction stakeout of the design that I had done. So I got to see firsthand what that design that I was doing, how that was being built. And honestly, I became a better designer because of those experiences and something that I wish our younger engineers had more experience and were given more of an opportunity to do today. But even though I enjoyed design, it was something that I really liked to do. There was always something else that I was always interested in more aspects, more challenges. 
how I kind of got into project management was I remember sitting there, I had just got done with the design, something I hadn't really done in the past. And I spent about a month working on this design. Very proud of what I did as an engineer would do. I designed it, redesigned it, overthought it, did as much as I could to make sure that it was perfect. One day, my business you know, owner came, who was my manager, of course, at the time. I've been with the firm probably two to three years at this point. And he said, Mike, how did that project go? And I said, well, it was, I thought it went really well. He checks the design, the design meet the requirements. He said, no, I thought it was great, but I'm wondering why it took you so long to do. I'm looking at him like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I had budgeted only three weeks and it took you almost a month to get it done. And we blown the budget. And I looked at him with like three heads, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean budget? What does that mean? And he's like, well, I budgeted how many hours it would take you to do. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was an internal budget. I didn't even know how we made money at this. Look, we're design provide. You know, I didn't learn any of that in college. I just came. I thought my whole job was to design and spend as much time as I could to make the most perfect thing. At that point, I started really piqued my interest of how do we make money at this? I enjoy design, but I was really curious, like, how do we make money at this? And so I wanted to become a project manager and learn those aspects. And so I left that company ultimately and then went into a very, very large company and a trial by fire. I didn't have any experience as a project manager, but they gave me an opportunity to learn. And quickly, I became a project manager, willing to take on some of the harder projects. We had some very difficult clients, but I wanted to learn and absorb it and figure it out. And I think some of that tenacity gave me those opportunities to learn and grow. And from there, I just kept taking on bigger and bigger challenges. You know, from there, growing into senior project manager, I got to manage a lot of different types of things. Program manager, where in that term, you know, taking one client who's developing sites all over the place, hundreds of different sites at the same time from concept through construction, learning to manage different people and different offices and not just your own team. You know, what does it mean to manage the work instead of doing the work? Again, I came from just doing it myself. I had to learn all those different things, but that was the side of the business that kind of piqued my interest. And through that time, I eventually worked my way through director, group manager, and even serving on our board of directors at my last company for a period of time. So all those experiences really gave me a well-rounded kind of understanding of what it took to grow a business, not just be a technical person, not just be a project manager or a group manager. It was really curious about how all of these things fit together to grow a business, especially in the engineering world. I got ingrained in business development, not just repeat client business, like how do you go and get new work? From an engineer, that's, to me, it was terrifying. Like going into a setting where I had to learn those aspects, understanding what it took to grow an office, to open a new office, new region, new business line, territory, all those things were very interesting to me and kind of built me to take on what I'm going to say is probably my biggest challenge to date, which is I opened my own business management and strategic advisor consultant business. In this business, you mentioned it, Lozanoff Consulting Services has got my name on it because it's you know predominantly me who try to go in and work with business owners and sometimes their leadership teams of really understanding their business, understanding the challenges that they're going through, taking all my years of experience and kind of helping them grow their own business or maybe enhancing in some aspect. Honestly, every client that I work for is a little bit different. I've done everything from working with them to look at their operations and assess things that are going on, help create better systems to enhance and profitability, setting up project management uh, systems and processes, training project managers on how to do projects within their firms. I spent a decent amount of time doing that. Could be strategic planning. You know, what are we doing in the next five years? Maybe it's a business line plan, business growth and opportunity, organizational development. So it's a myriad of things, I guess, that basically what I try to do is take, again, all of those experiences and help these businesses in our industry grow. Even though it's our industry, none of the businesses are the same. Everybody's got different challenges. They're similar, but how they attack them are different. And I really enjoy kind of getting in and figuring out how to help people manage and kind of grow their business and make it more profitable in the end, to be honest. 
it's good to hear your story because we do a lot of PM development and training work at EMI as well. And I think we hear a lot of what you said in your story, example story that you gave, which is I found out from my supervisor that our project went over budget. Number one, I don't know what over budget means. And also, you know, we talk a lot about scope creep where, you know, you're doing stuff that you're not getting paid for. And a lot of times people do stuff that they're not getting paid for because they don't know what their company is getting paid for. Their supervisor never maybe explained it to them. So definitely some of the things that we're both hearing about and the work that we do. And that's one of the reasons that we have Mike on. And that's one of the reasons that we're going to talk about invoicing and write-offs today, because it is one of those areas of project management, business in the AE world that is just a struggle a lot of times for project managers. And so we're going to dive into that a little bit today. So Mike, like in any business, I mean, invoicing plays a really huge role. And you know, most engineering companies are invoicing customers on a daily basis, depending on their cycles and things of that nature. So in your opinion, why do you think that this necessity of doing business is often really loathed by project managers, even though it's one of the most critical aspects of their jobs? When you think about it, we come from a technical background. Again, we were taught in college or school to understand our craft and design and make put out the best design we possibly can. As project managers, what I've seen in most firms is similar to me and my experience, trial by fire. I didn't go through project management training. I learned as an engineer and how to work through teams and a number of different things to become what they called a project manager, which was I was in charge of that project. So you learn all of those aspects, but, you know, little is, again, taught on the project management side. And, you know, there's so much technical training that's out there. Think about our profession, right? As a professional or a licensed engineer, we have to, depending on the state that we're practicing in, we have to get continuing education credits. They're usually on technical aspects. From a project management standpoint, it's usually a lot trial by fire. And so what do we do? Well, we came from a technical background. We learned that. Now we're overseeing that. We're checking it. And our biggest thought at that time is to serve my clients best, I need to get the project out the door on time and served with quality. I think that's the biggest thing as a project manager that I need to do. Oftentimes, what I find is we're not reminding project managers enough that really they're business managers, not just project managers. And just because you had great skills as an engineering or a technical manager doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate automatically into becoming a good project manager. At the end of the day, A&E firms make money doing what? Projects. And the better those projects are managed, the more profitable that company is going to be but we still need to get money through the door. Understanding and linking those two aspects of what does that mean getting money through the door? Because again, as a project manager, I'm less focused on that. I'm more focused on the product itself. But teaching them as a project manager, you make money for the firm. We're sometimes afraid to tell that to PMs. Maybe they're going to get a big head over that or what. But in reality, that's their job is to make money for the firm. And how well they do that, the better the firm is going to be and the better the firm will be able to help their employees do those things. But I can tell you time and time again, project manager after project manager, I see they're all busy, right? We're busy as project managers. We've got a lot of responsibility and a lot of accountability to do a lot of different things. I tell people all the time, unfortunately, that comes with the territory. That's the price to get in. You're going to be busy but you have a greater responsibility and to see the firm get paid. Invoices are just a part of that without proper invoices that have been kind of checked by you that are going to your client that you expect to be paid. Money doesn't come in the door. And at the end of the day, we can talk about all we want about the great designs and being published in this article or that article, but at the core of what we do is business. And if we're not getting money in the door, it's very hard to make money. Showing project managers that linkage of their responsibility and how invoices kind of go, I think is important. And I'll just tell you a quick story. One of the things that I do in some of the project management training is I talk to them about, okay, let's say you're the business owner. You have a small business, you're the business owner, you have a project manager that's working for you. And let's just simplify things. Let's take day one, we get a project in the door and it's a 30-day project. So we're going to work on that project for 30 days. Now, as a business owner, in order to run a business, I have to get capital. So how I do that is I go to the bank and they give me a line of credit, hopefully. So that's how I'm able to actually get the lights on and, and get people paid. 
as an employee, we probably will pay you biweekly. So in 30 days, I'm going to have paid you two times and you deserve it. You've done a great job. But at the end of the day, I've not collected a dime, right? I've borrowed that money to pay you. Oh, and by the way, the bank's charging me interest, which I can't charge to you, but forget about that aspect. Now, when the invoice comes, and if it's a dreaded subject and you're not kind of treating that with the same kind of care that you did on your project, maybe you just have too many different things going on and we delay that for, let's say it's just two weeks. That's not that long. It's two weeks. How bad could that be? Well, in two weeks, I've paid you yet again now for the third time and I've got no money coming in. Now we send that invoice out probably another week or two later till it gets through accounting or whatever we got to do. So now we're 60 days in after doing the work of which I paid you four times and I've not been paid. Then when I send the invoice to the client, I don't know about you, Anthony, but I've never had a client just waiting for my invoice. They just can't wait till it gets there because they want to pay me instantly. So they probably have 30 days cycle to pay. So now we're at, you know, 60 to 90 days and I paid you all of those times yet not gotten paid. And when I think I tell them you would never, if you were the business owner and responsible for all of this, you would never run your business this way. You'd be scared to death because you're constantly drawing money from the bank and that's your responsibility. We can do anything that we want to, but if we don't have money coming in the door, we can't keep the lights on. You don't have a job and they're the ones that are responsible for doing that. And I think when we start to break things down for people that way, they get to see it versus too often I say, why don't you have your invoices done? Or somebody from accounting calling you and it's like, don't you see I have so much to do? They haven't really kind of linked those. Why are invoices that important? They're just as important as everything else that we do. The bottom line is, is people are really focused on getting their projects out because of course they want to make their clients happy. You can get all the projects out in the world, but if you don't get paid for the projects in a timely manner, they may be the last projects that you're getting out or that the company is able to deliver on because it is a business. And one of the things that we often do with companies that we're working with is even as a primer to PM training, doing some kind of intro to consulting or business one-on-one where you can really learn about the importance of timesheets, what happens if you don't do them in a timely manner, invoices don't go out. And it is important because technical professionals are in the trenches and that's a big part of their job, right? Do the work, get the work done, get the work out. And so they don't understand the business impacts of some of the decisions that they make unless they get educated around it. And that's why I think it's so important for companies and leadership to educate their professionals around this which is why, of course, another reason that we had Mike come on today to talk about some of these things. And I think also what's important from a development standpoint, whether you're hiring someone to do a PM training or development, or you're doing it yourself internally, that's a very high leverage investment. Because if you get people invoicing quicker, being more cognizant of business, you're going to be more profitable. You're going to hopefully need less from that credit line, like Mike's referring to. And so that's why I think it could be a really, really high return strategy for you, you know, really developing what we like to say at EMI is more of a PM culture in your company as opposed to just kind of a one and done training. And they should want to get paid. We've worked really hard to put out that product, right? Your team has worked hard. You've done a great job as a project manager. Just because we get a paycheck doesn't mean we're getting paid as a company. And I'm just trying to get them to think of that difference versus collecting a paycheck versus getting the company paid. We deserve that money. We did a fantastic job. We want to get paid for it as soon as possible. Yeah. I think to your point earlier, some people that don't have that experience or that knowledge, they know they're getting their paycheck every two weeks and they don't know that it's coming either way, they feel like, and they may not understand the business cycle of it. And so, so what we want to do here, of course, Mike, is try to make this show actionable and kind of help people. We're talking about it. Let's talk about some tips that maybe you can give to help our listeners make that monthly invoicing process go a little bit more smoothly and efficiently. What can you offer up to them? At the end of the day, I think it's we got to remind ourselves we're not manufacturers. We don't have a product to sell, right? We sell a service line. We're a professional services firm. Most engineering companies are. And with that, it's kind of breaking it down and understanding we all know that we have bill rates, right? And we all know that we have that time, you know, we charge hours. And whether you're doing whatever you call it, fixed fee, lump sum, hourly not to exceed, time of materials, we're all tracking. I've not met one engineering firm that doesn't track their time on a timesheet, right? So if you're going to put your time on a timesheet, it's going somewhere. And it's really to understand that chargeability to that project that eventually gets translated to your clients. 
So if you think about it that way, and you mentioned timesheets, it's another one of the things that everybody, not just PMs, everybody seems to dread doing a timesheet, technical people, et cetera. But if you're going to run a business, it starts to me, it's always started with the timesheet. If we're going to track the time, we got to get it accurate. And what I try to tell project managers is, first of all, make sure your job is set up accurately. If it's one phase, two phases, 20 phases, or phases with tasks, et cetera, set that project up correctly from the get-go. Then meet with your folks in your kickoff meeting, which you should be having, and show them where they should be posting their time. Write it down for them. Don't just walk away and tell them where it's to go. Like Write it down for them so they have something to refer to and have them do it every day. Why would we have them do it every day? I can barely get them to do it for a week, I hear. I understand. But I don't know about you, but I can't remember everything I did yesterday. So much has gone on in my world, I I just can't remember. And I don't care if you're a designer or you're a project manager or you're the CEO. Everybody's got different things and different draws pulling at them at different times. And so if you're waiting till the end of the week to do your timesheet, like, again, I can't remember what I did yesterday. How am I going to remember what I did last week? And worse yet, I'm sure there's inefficiencies. I don't remember how long I spent on that, but I'll just write down eight hours. So we're not really getting good information to do that. Part one is set your job up right, communicate where that time should be posted, make them do the timesheets, and then you got to check if they're doing that. And how do I mean by check? Well, it could be a number of different things. It all depends on the size of the group or size of the business that you have. But I'm sure there's in your accounting system somewhere ability to look at work and process and where people are charging their time. And if you don't have that set up in your business, maybe it's time to talk to your manager about how can I see that? I guarantee your businesses are tracking it. They see this information because you need to know that folks are putting it in the right area at the right time. I can tell you how many instances where people just continue to post, even though you've told them post it to the wrong time. If they're waiting a week, to put it in the right time and you don't check and you wait a month because that's when my invoice comes out or my draft invoice, it's really hard to fix. I found the people who dread invoicing the most spend no time with what I've just said. They hope that it gets done. They don't verify. And at the end, it's a mess. And I have to fix that. And I've already had no time to do it. So I know it's difficult. I know it's painful. And what I mean by checking, I don't mean checking every timesheet. I mean, mostly, I don't know how many projects each people are managing, but think about the most active in that week. And you can quickly kind of scan to see if people are putting their time in the right areas. Are they spending a little bit too much time, et cetera? And the last thing I would say about the timesheet linkage is not just because you want to have a good invoice. When I get to there and they say, well, I usually just do it at the end of the month and fix it. I ask them this question, how on earth do you know where your budget is during the month? Because if people are posting time to the wrong places, you have no idea where your budgets are. Do you know that you're over budget, under budget? You really can't tell me. And that's usually where you get what we call the surprise ending at the month. And it's usually never a good surprise. When you shake all the time out and put it in the right spaces and everything, oh, now we found out that we're over budget. And let's go back to my beginning scenario. So if I've waited two weeks to start my invoicing, I'm now six weeks behind that process. How hard is it to fix something that's six weeks in the past? It's like impossible. And I don't care how long your project is, that's a long time to recover. Whether you've got a one year, one month, two month project, it can be irrecoverable if you don't kind of keep tabs on things and get your people set up and hold them accountable to do so. You might just one thing I want to jump in on here, which is really important. Some of our listeners, you might be the person who's filling out the timesheets and your PM has to review them on a regular basis and get those budget updates. Or you might be the PM where you have multiple people filling out timesheets. You got to run reports, right? In both instances here, just to think about this, to kind of frame out some of what Mike said there, because I think it's really valuable. If you're doing your timesheets later than you're supposed to, and your PM is not getting accurate and up-to-date information, that could really cause issues in terms of business decisions that they're making on their projects. And of course, invoicing, right? And things of that nature. So that's really important. But then on the flip side, as the manager, if you don't set those phases up correctly from the beginning and have your team members charging to the right phases, you're also going to be in trouble when it comes time to do your invoicing 
And one thing I'll say in general that I think is a really important aspect of project management, which is kind of captured in everything we're talking about, is how often you're running project reports, how often you're keeping tabs on your budgets, and how often you're able to flag where you have these variances. Because what happens with a lot of project managers that we've discovered through doing PM training is the way that they track their projects is they get a monthly pre-bill from their accounting department. And at that point in time, they look at everything and they say, oh, wow, geez, we're $5,000 over. I didn't realize that. The really successful project managers that we work with are running either weekly or every other week reports, or they're asking their team members to run those reports, keeping them accountable. And then they're able to see these things and catch these things ahead of time, as opposed to just when they do their monthly bill. So these are just some things that I want to throw out there while Mike is talking about how to improve your invoicing steps, because if you're making any of his improvements, you're likely going to improve the overall billing and collection cycle. Absolutely. And I can give you a real life example of how I saw that all play out. You know, when I went to that big firm, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew that I was responsible for this. And I would spend at the end of every week reviewing everybody. So everybody went home on Friday. I'm not advocating. I wasn't there till midnight, right? I took maybe a half an hour to understand where my team was putting their on their timesheets before I signed off on them. And because I did that at the end, I knew I was almost doing like a mini invoice every month. I knew how this was affecting everything along the way. So yes, it took me an extra half an hour at the end of every Friday, you know, so I was a little late to happy hour. But at the end of the day, I understood that when it came to the end of the month, I was one of the first person people done with my invoicing. And it wasn't a contest with me. I had just done them all the way. So by the time I got to that fourth week, I already knew where everything, I didn't have to worry about this person charged to the wrong place and this budget. I knew where we were. And those other project managers I saw around me, they would just, it would be a stack on their desk and they would get to it when they could get to it. And it was weeks because it was a mess. They didn't feel, they didn't put the priority on doing that. It's going to be, where do you want to take the pain? Do you want to take it a little bit at a time each week? Or do you want all of the pain at the end when you probably have other deliverables that are due, projects are due? Like it's at the end of the month, like a lot of different things are coming at you. Take it as you can, you know, be on top of as much of it as you can. It all plays together. Budgets, invoicing, they're not different things. It's all basically ties together. And for those of you out there thinking, you know what, some of this stuff is really things that we need to address in our companies. What I will say to you is the initial reaction for a lot of people is to say, hey, we need some PM training. I'm not a huge fan of the word training because to me, it signifies kind of a one and done event. So what we try to say at EMI is what you really need is you need PM development, which happens over time. And also what we try to say is you need to build more of a PM culture. Mike kind of reminded me of that point because essentially his last couple of comments there are really around building better PM habits. And that's really what you need to do. Like when he went to that company, he had good habits around invoicing. Other people didn't. So you'll know what project was probably going to be more successful or which project manager is going to be more successful. So you need to start at a very young age with your PMs early in their careers and get them to build good PM habits. And that's a really important part of doing everything that we're talking about here Mike, one of the other things I really want to touch on here is, is write-offs. First of all, a lot of people don't understand what write-offs are, so I definitely want you to explain what they are. Some people may call them write-downs. You may hear them referred to as write-downs or write-offs. So what are they? Why are they not good? Write-offs seem to have a pretty bad connotation in our industry. So when you're writing something off, it means that you've spent more than what you had budgeted for. So I cannot bill that to the client. I got to do something with that labor. So what do we do? We don't charge anybody for it. So therefore, the company essentially writes that revenue or that lost revenue off. Revenue being that the billable rate times the hour generates a revenue that I'd love to be able to bill to the client within its budget. But when I'm out of budget, I need to do something with that labor. What do I do with that? I essentially write it off or write it down or whatever word that is that you want to use with that. When we talk about write-offs, I mean, we spend so much time and a lot of the different companies that I see that it is, you know, it's like a bad word to talk about. And some of the, the work that I've done with project managers is group managers, et cetera, is that not every write-off that we're going to have is a bad thing. And what I mean by that is there's going to be certain times. I'm sure that people out there, like, what if we wanted to go after a project that's new to us? And we had to submit a competitive fee. 
We actually had to take it for a lesser fee. It happens all the time in our industry. This is a new project that we want to get. We're not as experienced. We want to take it as a lesser fee. Well, the budget that we created, we we're probably going to have a hard time meeting that budget. And probably at the end, we're going to overrun it. And so that time is a write-off. Is it a bad write-off? Not necessarily. It's a planned write-off. Or it could be something that we're, what if a lot of times I hear, well, I budgeted it with person A and person A has a bill rate of 75 bucks an hour. They're not available to me now. I have to use somebody who's 125 bucks an hour. And I will tell them, I get you. I mean, there's no way, even that person with 125 an hour probably has a lot more efficiency in what they do. It's probably not twice that of the $75 an hour. So we're probably going to be over budget. So it's understanding that and kind of managing that through the process. There's a number of different ways that write-offs are always not a bad thing. We know what they're going to be. We have to plan for them. But I also remind project managers, this isn't your get out of jail free card. This is an excuse. Just because I took it at a lesser fee, I get to spend whatever I want. No, you actually have to manage it even more closely because we don't want to overrun it without any oversight. And so that's kind of, you know, when you think about write-offs from that sense. But at the end of the day, nobody wants to lose money. You know, we're not in this as a business to lose money. I'd like to talk to folks more in terms of understanding how profitable something is versus just focusing in on the write-off. Because I sometimes think we just focus on that dollar amount versus anything else. And we take it as just a loss. Good point. And I want to get into that with you in a minute here, profitability. But before we do that, again, I'm going to go back to this again. Maybe I sound like a broken record in this episode, but project tracking again can minimize your write-offs. Because again, if you recognize a variance earlier on in the project, you can make adjustments, whether that means getting someone who's less expensive, or maybe you ended up working out a scope and that helps you to realize it. And then you can recapture some of those costs by getting an extra and add services request or something along those lines. But you can't do any of that unless you're tracking your project on a consistent basis and you flag those variances and you address them. So I just want to say write-offs, they're bad. Maybe in some cases they're not bad, but either way, you really want to try to avoid them. And the way you can avoid them, of course, is by recognizing them and maybe either avoiding or minimizing them. Because I think at the end of the day, listen, write-offs happen. I mean, they're going to happen to every project manager at some point in your career, maybe on every project in some sense. But if you can minimize them, catch them early, then I think you're going to be you know, much better off. And again, goes back to project tracking. Well, and just because we have some of the justification, I'll just tell you another quick story. So I had a project manager come to me and in our business, we're always trying to bring in young people out of school, right? They have no, they're not experienced. And so we want to give them experience on projects. And so I had a project manager come to me and say, look, we're going to use such and such on this project. They've never done that before. What are you thinking? I said, that's great. They've not gotten this experience. We need to get them that experience. Let them work on this project. It was about two weeks into it. And they come to me and it's at the end of the billing cycle and we're over budget. Now, I knew that we were probably going to be over budget to some degree because they're not going to be as efficient and we're probably going to have some learning experience there with that person. But when they came to me, it's not an excuse of why we went over budget. And they said, well, they were new. Okay, well, they were new. So when did we find out that they were over budget? I just kind of found out now. If we knew that they were new and we knew that they never had this done before, why weren't we checking with them every couple of days or asking, more important, asking them to check in with us? Because that's the other thing that I think we're afraid to. We put so much pressure on the project manager. You need to check in with everybody. And I always say, at least people kind of work for you. So they can check in with you as well. They can come so tell you and show you what you've done. It doesn't always have to be you going to them. When we don't check in on these things on a regular basis, we're going to be surprised at the end. And that's how kind of write-offs just grow unintentionally. But even, like I said, if we're trying to change the connotation around that and understand maybe why write-offs happen, it doesn't mean that it's just a carte blanche excuse that, hey, we just have to accept it because of this, that, or the other thing. We've got to manage it all the more closely. Mike just gave another, I think, example of why PM culture is important as opposed to PM training. If you do a PM training once or twice a year, which a lot of firms do, some firms don't even do it that much, but some firms do it once or twice a year, right? And then you get new employees that come in between those training sessions. They're not getting the training. They don't know what invoicing is. They don't know how you do it. They don't know what write-ups are. They don't know how to track their projects. Again, you need a PM culture that 
people are doing these things on a regular basis. It just becomes second nature. And maybe there are some programs or ways to bring people that are new onboard them and get them up to speed on your habits. That's kind of becoming a running theme of this episode is that that culture and those habits are so important because you can't rely on a new person to come into your company and know all these things unless you've created the company, built it in a way that you can easily bring them on board and get they'll teach them the language, so to speak, is another way that I like to describe it. And so, Mike, you talked a little bit before about project profitability. Talk about profitability and how it is a really good metrics for tracking successful project outcomes. This is just my personal opinion, but I think when we look at things of how profitable something is versus how much we're writing off, I think, again, let me go back to that. If I were to give you an example of, and say, okay, I thought we did really well on this project, but we wrote off $10,000. You might only want to focus on, oh my God, $10,000. Why did we write this off? Like what happens? It becomes such a focus and the amount of money becomes such a focus. But if I said to you, our normal profitability is we run around 8%, maybe 10% on a project. And this one, we ran closer to 7% or maybe even 5%. It has less of a connotation. And I feel like we spend more time thinking about, okay, how did we not reach the 7% or 8% versus focused on that kind of dollar amount? And the reason I say that, it's a good reminder. Look, at 5%, we still made money. We may not have made the money that we wanted to, but we still made money. If I only ever tell you that you wrote off $10,000 on a project, you have no idea if we've made money or not, if you don't look at profitability. And when I worked at some firms that all we did is focus on the write-offs, at the end of the job, it always seemed like a failure because as good as we did, and it may only been a 500 or a thousand, but at the end of the day, it stowed a loss. It didn't show a game. Like all of that kind of brought the team down of we did such a great job, but we wrote off $500. But if I would have said to them, hey, our target was 10%, we wrote off 500 bucks, but we still came in, you know, at 9.5%, we did a good job. It's just a different way of kind of looking at things. It still doesn't mean that you don't want to focus on, you did lose a little bit of money, but it doesn't become such a punitive way of looking at it. Like I'm only focusing on this red number and not what were the, some of the good things that we actually did in the job? Look, if you were to take a new job, if I was coming to say, Anthony, we got a great opportunity on a project we've never done before. It's our foot in the door. We've been trying to get with this client. And I think we really can do this job. At the end of the day, we're going to write off $20,000. But I just want to let you know that. You as the PM or the business owner might go, Mike, that sounds terrible to me. Like we're going to take a job we don't know anything about and we're going to lose 20,000 bucks. But if I were to say to you, we're not going to hit our 10%, but we're still going to make 5%, you might go, huh, you know, we're still going to make money. Not as much as, but for the first one, I'll take 5%. You see the difference of what I'm trying to say there? For sure. And, and let's take it one step further here, Mike. Talk about project profitability versus firm profitability. Are those the same? No. At the end of the day, those two things are different. And I think I can probably explain this with a, another quick story. So let's say we have an engineer going to work on a project and um, they're a salaried employee. So meaning we pay them for 40 hours of work and they get no overtime. Okay. We don't bonus them. They're not getting any paid overtime. So no matter how many hours they work, they get paid the same thing. So from a firm standpoint, I've already paid for their direct labor and their salary for those 40 hours. I've paid the lights to keep the lights on, the utilities, all of those things. That's all wrapped together. None of that, if that person stays one extra hour in my office, I don't pay more for electricity. I don't pay more for water, right? Those things are pretty much set. From a project standpoint, doesn't work like that. And what I mean by that, let's go back to another, that same scenario. Let's say we told that young engineer who happened to be paid salary, look, you're going to work on this, or let's use a different example. Maybe it's somebody even more senior. We want to go after this project. And I tell them, okay, I know you get paid salary, so I don't want to see anything over 40 hours. I want you to put to a non-billable phase, whatever overhead phase you got, admin, promo, whatever you call it. At the end of the day, they're only charging 40 hours. So that's what I budgeted. So as I'm looking at that, at the end of the day, I'm at the budget. Fantastic. Our profitability is great, but we really have no idea of anything. And what if it took that person 42 hours? What if it took them 82 hours? If we had 82 hours and our profitability was actually negative or we wrote off more money than we had anticipated, 
either we need to do something differently or we may just decide that we can't go after that job because we just can't be profitable at it the way we're structured, right? But if I only ever charge 40 hours because as a firm, they don't get paid anymore, I'm not seeing any of that information. So it looks like my project ended up profitable. In the meantime, it really wasn't. So from a firm, I made the same amount of money. But from that project, I really didn't. If I'm managing a project, let's say, and you know, Mike is working on my project team and I tell him, hey, I've only budgeted 30 hours for you to work on this task. You can't charge anything more to that. Ends up taking him 60. I'm never going to know that unless he tells me that. And then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and we're going to keep going down that road. However, if I said, listen, charge whatever it takes you to the project. If it's an overage, then we need to figure out why it was an overage and we need to make adjustments on our next project. It's going to look bad for that one project, of course, but in the long term, you've got to become better at managing and delivering these projects or else you're just going to keep affecting the bottom line of the company in a very negative way. And so that's a really important part of project management, having that transparency in those conversations with your team members and making sure that there's continuous improvement. And if something goes wrong on one project, that's you need to address it, have a, you know, a lessons learned at the end of your project to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So I'm glad that Mike really touched on that there. We talked about a lot there. We talked about you know invoicing, the importance of invoicing, write-offs, looking at project profitability, project profitability versus firm profitability. And really a lot of the running theme was developing better PM habits, right? And building that great PM culture in your company, as opposed to just thinking about doing PM training or having some PM conversations once in a while. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back, switch it up for a minute and just ask Mike a couple of last career-related questions on the Civil Engineering Hot Seat. We'll be back in just a minute. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, we're back with Mike Lozanoff. Mike's a licensed professional engineer, owner of Lozanoff Consulting Services. He helps AE firms grow. We had a great conversation so far about project management, invoicing, write-offs, profitability. But now we're going to put Mike on the civil engineering hot seat and wrap up with a couple of last career-related questions. You ready, Mike? You bet. All right. So first question, do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a maybe a morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? I don't know that I'd call it a ritual, but I guess I would say is, to be honest with you, I'm a list writer. There's so many different things that go on in my day and in my week, and it's easy to get distracted in our business, especially if you're coming from a project manager or management background. It's a daily routine. So in the morning, I look at the list that I have at the beginning of the week. I'll create a list for the entire week of things that I know that need to get done, and then I'll try to prioritize that for that day. In the morning, I'll kind of look at that, prioritize, and then go through it. And then what I try to do at the end of the day is just spend a little time to see, was I able to get through the things that I was able to, you know, wanted to, et cetera. And it helps me kind of prioritize and think about things for tomorrow. Inevitably, I will never ever get everything done off my list. Sometimes I do, but usually something pushes for whatever reason or not. Sometimes it'll push to the next day, but sometimes when I look at it, it's now a different priority. So you know, think about it at the end of the day allows me to come in fresh the next day and think about it. I don't know that that's a ritual, but I find that that kind of helps me get set for the day and kind of almost helps me unwind. So by doing that, I kind of decompress here versus decompressing at home. You know, I kind of get to leave it here and I know it's a, I'm better prepared for the next day. All right. Next question. Is there a book that has been very helpful for you. Obviously, I'm sure we all read a lot of books throughout our career, but sometimes there's one or two that stick out for you that you stuck with you, you practice things from them. Is there a book that has jumped out for you that you might recommend to our listeners? I've read a lot of different books. And when I talk to other folks, I've never found that there's just one book that's a be all end all. And I think that's a good thing. And what I've talked to folks about is in these definitely leadership or product manager guides or whatever you're reading periodical on some CEO that did this or that, there's always going to be some element that speaks to you. Either it's going to allow you to build upon your strength or maybe highlight a weakness that maybe you didn't think about and give you that opportunity. And then there's going to be those elements of the book that really just don't speak to you. And what I would say is, that's fine. Leave those behind. Don't try to tailor your management style just because you read this specific book. And I've met a number of people that have read a book, loved the book, and said, I'm going to do all of this in this specific way. But I guess if you were to make me pick one book that kind of just 
I refer to it a lot is Jim Collins, Good to Great. I think it's just a very interesting perspective on business and management and leadership, everything from level five leadership, which is, you know, first who, then what, versus what I think a lot of firms do is, and I've done myself in my career, like try to figure it out what is I want to accomplish and then who do I find to do that? I don't know about you, but it's very hard. Like once you've created that picture, of, especially if it's strategic, it's then very hard to go find that person who fits that. And where I've been more successful in my career is find people that are really good at certain things and then plug them in there. Even when I was working with different project managers, I've had some that are great at going and finding new business and business development and others that were great project managers, but just loathed business development which is funny because they were very good with clients, but just hated it. And this whole thing about, you know, where he gets into putting the right people in the right seats on the bus has been important for me. And I've taken those life lessons everywhere of just what are they good at and let them go be good at it. And I think that whole thing about take your best people and put them on the biggest opportunities. Too often we take our best people and we put them on our biggest challenges because we know that they're good and they're going to help us figure it out. Well, at the end of the day, we're engineers. We get paid to figure things out. But there's only certain people that can go do certain things that everybody can't. Not everybody can go open an office. Not everybody can bring new clients in the door. You find somebody that is really good at that, help them focus that in and focus your business around that person versus the other way. So it really kind of opened my eyes as a young engineer to seeing different things and just kind of a lot of concepts that I practice today. I mean, I still think the book resonates. I just saw some things on LinkedIn about Jim Collins is still out there doing, you know, seminars and whatnot. So obviously the book's been around a long time and concepts still resonate with people. So that's just one that no matter what I've read, I always just kind of put the right people in the right seats on the bus. That just has stuck with me forever. All right. So the next question is thinking back on your managers of the past, you don't have to name any names, but just generally speaking, if you think of your favorite managers, what was it that made them your favorite? We're trying to understand here in the AEC world, what do good managers do? Like, what is the common traits between them? Just being, you know, team oriented, understanding their role as a leader of the overall team, somebody who's there to guide us and kind of shepherd us through the challenges that we were going to be facing somebody who not necessarily, you know, will get in to the trenches all the time because you don't want them to be micromanaging, but somebody that you feel had your back all the time that you were not afraid to when you came up a challenge and you're going to have many of them in your career. You weren't afraid to go to them and say, hey, I don't understand something because you weren't worried about the recourse. You knew you were going to get some good mentorship from those people. They were going to be patient with you and kind of guide you along the way. We use this phrase all the time, not just in our industry, but everywhere. You know, they got to walk the walk. They just can't talk the talk. And some of my best managers have kind of exemplified that. I've had some managers that will say one thing and totally do another. You know, trying to guide me is you need to hold your people more accountable. I don't really know how to do that. Can you show me that versus you need to hold your people accountable. And then you see them as managers, not holding anybody accountable, right? And you're like, I don't understand how this works. So again, bringing those people in and showing them being that coach and mentor. And, you know, we're all in this together. At the end of the day, we're successful as a team. Not one person makes up that team. So I think some of those people probably would be the highest on my list. All right. Last question, Mike. You are in an elevator with a civil engineering professional. Let's say they're younger in their career. You have 30 seconds with them. What career advice do you give them in 30 seconds? I think it all depends on what they really want to do. So what I would tell them, whether they're an engineer or a project manager, let's just pick on a project manager at this point. You know, somebody who wants to become a project manager, because I get asked that question a lot, right? I think I want to become a project manager. And I talk to them about things like, well, if you like being in control of the process and control doesn't mean you're telling people what to do. Control of the process means, you know, you're understanding your budgets, you're understanding schedule, you want your deliverables out on time. You like team collaboration and building teams that with mentorship and guidance, you are willing to take ownership and responsibility. The team enjoy the successes. You as the leader have to own, you know, the failures and understand and take responsibility that this is something that I was responsible for and I need to fix. 
being willing to hold people accountable, not in a punitive way, just showing them, taking accountability as a guide and as a tool, being willing to be a good communicator internally and externally. And if you like all of those aspects, go for it. You should be a project manager and God knows we need you. In our industry, we need good project managers who are supported and will support others. And those people, again, back to the beginning of our conversation before, they run our business for us and we need to give them all the tools we can to be as successful. And conversely, if you hate everything that I just said there and you just like doing technical work, do the technical work. You will not enjoy yourself as a project manager and you will not prioritize anything that I said. And therefore, you will be miserable and your firm will probably not be better for it at the end of the day. Mike Lozanoff from Lozanoff Consulting Services. I want to thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike. I know it was a little bit longer than a lot of episodes, but I can't emphasize how important it is to build a PM culture within your consulting firm as opposed to just providing PM training, which sometimes doesn't get done anyway. You need to build good habits around project management like anything else because your project managers drive your profitability. And again, feel free to reach out to me if you want to talk about how you can do that, whether EMI, whether we help you at EMI or not, certainly feel free to reach out. You can give me a call 800-920-4007. Again, that's 800-920-4007. And remember, you can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.